your host for Lacrosse Talk PM, Rick Sola. All right, welcome to a Thursday of Lacrosse Talk PM. 608-785-7914 is the talk and text line. I am Rick Solom. In the studio with me this hour is Barrett Klein, and he's the bug guy at UWL. That's <laughs> entomologist. Is you that know it? Is that I did, I did it right? Because there's another like weird etymologist science-y. studies the roots of words. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, that's that's kind of what we're talking about. But um, there's another like weird sciency name for somebody that does something totally different. And I was in my head. Histologist, it, homologist, epidemi- epidemiologist, epidemiologist, epidemiologist. That's the one. Spread of disease. So I have to think about because I have Chris Maine from Viterbo on when COVID oh. was happening. He's epidemi- epidemiologist, uh-huh. and we talked about the virus quite a bit. Look at this cord. Well, goodness. there can be the occasional link between, say, insects as vectors of disease, and epidemics or pandemics. Think of something that halved Europe's population more than once, the plague, and it was initially. Uh, transferred or vectored by a flea. Was it a flea? Okay, I was thinking mosquito or something right. like that. Okay, so you're starting this on a downer note. Good job, no. Barrett. <laughs> the whole conversation we had leading up to the show, because I want to talk about bugs, and um, I had I have, uh, I just lost it. Not epidemiologist Ted Wilson. Uh, entomologist. Entomologist Ted Wilson from Viterbo on uh, multiple times. And we've always talked, and it usually ends up being like the, oh, oh no, like the, the bugs are going to, all the bugs are going to die. Or we have a murder hornets, right? Mm. We when I was a kid, it was killer bees. I haven't, mm. I haven't, they haven't come here yet, I don't mm. think. No, killer um, bees, Africanized bees, brought over by Warwick Kerr in the 1950s from Africa. The idea was maybe they're so active they can produce more honey, but many problems came with that, and apparently they were released about a score of colonies, and then they fly three to five hundred kilometers northward per year. But then they've settled in warmer regions. Uh, so if you go, for example, to Texas, Arizona, yeah. southern states. Well, yeah, we're, we, we're protected here for a while anyway yeah. until we're not – until it's warm here. All, That's right. Uh, as we uh, have no snow on the ground. That's right. I mean, it is freezing out. But um, well, well, who is this guy that did this? Warwick Kerr. Okay, so when Warwick's in Africa and he's like, you know what? I'm going to bring these – I mean, hey, Warwick, they're called killer bees. <laughs> oh, well <laughs> – that that name stuck after he brought them oh, over. Oh, really? They weren't called killer bees yeah. in Africa? Far more aggressive. Obviously, they have a, the goofy name. But we have murder hornets. So um, a lot of it was doom and gloom. It was even the GMO mosquitoes. So we're going to... We're going to get rid of the male parts of the mosquitoes so they can't reproduce. I think that's a very uh, dumbed-down way to say it. Um, and then it'll be like, okay, well, then there will be no mosquitoes. And it's kind of like the bug apocalypse, and there will be no bugs. Uh, bats won't be able to eat anything. Um, what were some of the other doom and gloomers? Yeah, so we're looking at two sides of coin here. We're looking at, okay, how do insects cause us harm versus what harm would we be caused if insects vanish? Yeah, either and, way, though, negative connotations. Yeah, well... One way to spin it is, if you think about insects as vectors of disease or the harm they can cause, it's just the tiniest sliver in terms of the number of species. We can flip it and think about the vast majority of species that actually allow us to exist in many forms, and that's something we can talk about. And I should say, Barrett works at UW Lacrosse, and you're Dr. Barrett Klein, I, uh, I presume. Yeah. I, I always forget, I had... Uh, a guy, uh, no, I just forgot his name. I had him on yesterday, and, and he used to he'd be a professor. He's sports economy at yeah. UW Cross. And I was like, oh, Adam Hoffer. And I always forget to ask him if he's Dr. Adam Hoffer because 
in my head, I'm like, sports economy. He doesn't need his doctorate for that. I'm just, I'm just Barrett. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, okay, so like, so we got to have a different conversation than, than the doom and gloom. Although cicadas, I the last time I had a conversation with Dr. Wilson about cicadas, they were in the East Coast. Yeah. And I'm sure, I don't Brood know. Route 10, this was the biggest. Yeah. But and next is it every year, 14 years? Every, so it's, it depends on the species. Okay. So there are 13-year and 17-year periodical okay. cicadas. There are seven species of periodical cicadas, one in Fiji, one in India, and the rest are all in the eastern U.S. But they creep over here and... We're going to be really lucky next year to face an explosive emergence of Brood 13. And I'm super excited about that because my friend Joseph Yoon from like Brooklyn cl- this- Bugs is coming all the way from New York City because he likes to cook them up. And I've got other <laughs> friends who work with them artistically and musically. This sounds like a cologne, Brute 13. <laughs> like, maybe maybe your friend, while he's cooking him up, as he smells the, like, whatever juices come out of Funny the Funny you should bring that he's up. He's like, Rick. you know what? This might be a cologne. Just yesterday, I was made aware of perfumes, with including insect perfumes. I mean, it's not the worst thing we've, we've no, conjured up for perfumes. And I'm not going to get no. into the worst. Uh, 608-785-7914. If you got just weird, okay, weird. I would love questions okay. about insects, but especially questions about, like, how do insects interact with human existence? How do they affect culture? And maybe later, Rick and I will talk about insect sleep. What does it mean for an insect to sleep? So I'm a behaviorist as well, someone who studies insect behaviors, and I'm someone who studies about how insects affect human culture. Now, when you're in entomologist yeah are you an insect guy mm-hmm. or a bug guy because remember it, I, when we were talking before the show i brought up oh spiders dream but spiders aren't insects they have eight legs so they're arachnids. arachnologist is, was studied is that a whole different thing or is well, that like i have to be an arachnid expert as well because i'm also do they fall under the entom- yeah sometimes people will throw a lot of different uh closely related invertebrates under the big umbrella of entomology yeah but more strictly, it involves insects. But I love arachnids. Is it? Uh, are you a big fan of the movie Starship Troopers? I still haven't seen it. And it's oh, been no. recommended and to me a number of times. That. I've got to There's see There's like it. three or four of them now. Right. But no, but, um, all right, we're going to take a break. 608-785-7914. If you, you guys got a, you want to text me questions or ask Barry a question, we'll be back. All right, welcome back to Lacrosse Talk PM. I am Rick Solom. In the studio with me is Barrett Klein. Dr. Barrett Klein, or just Barrett, he's an entomologist at UW Lacrosse. How long have you been doing that? At UW? 11 years. 11 years? You guys are always at 11 years, I feel like. <laughs> um, okay, so let's just do this a little. And I didn't, I should have, but I didn't. Um, as a kid, were you just a weird bug? Like, how do you get into, ent- you know, as, as an adult, I am the person that takes pictures of this weird giant. I live in the woods, so weird giant spiders or whatever what? bugs I find, and then send them off to social media where people go burn the house down right oh, away. You know, but is, you probably weren't. This is a, an unfortunate response. Smush the spider or burn the. You know, right. all it takes is a little guidance or maybe a little lesson about the glory of insect behavior or how it affects human culture to maybe turn our perspective in a really positive direction about insects. What do people and do with spiders in the winter? What do they do with what them? Sh- what, should, what do I do with no, them? No, what well, <laughs> I mean, I I've like, read that okay, I have a lot of wolf spiders. Yeah. Can I can I put them out in a leaf pile because Yeah, if you do it early enough, so, oh, so for now example, I'm okay. Yeah, if they, because a lot of both spiders and insects 
have survived beautifully in temperate zones in various ways. And overwintering can take the form of allowing ice to form in your body or having antifreeze to break down ice or in other ways finding nooks and crannies in which to yeah. hibernate. And so there, there are insects and spiders that go through diapause, which means they essentially metabolically shut down yeah. for extended periods. And so you might find a wolf spider or a, a yellow jacket queen that overwinters under a log. When I ask you about wolf spiders yeah. and spiders, and yeah. now, now when I'm thinking about things that are outside the winter, the woolly bear caterpillar, mm-hmm. are these all things that fall under your purview of they certainly entomology? Because like, I love insects. And, well, you could be called an arachnologist if you study spiders and their close relatives. Oftentimes they're thrown under the larger umbrella of it. Uh, umbrella of entomology. Yeah. Okay. What about the movie Arachnophobia? Oh yeah. You've In fact, my friend one. Stephen Kutcher was the insect wrangler for that movie, oh. the original Spider Man, and a whole list of other films. Okay. So he learned techniques. He actually applied his expertise in insect behavior and spider behavior in order to wrangle them for these Hollywood films. All right. So back to my original question: Were you just a yeah. weird bug guy as a kid? Not a guy, but a, a weird bug kid. Oh my goodness! The, so I grew up in a family of artists. So I looked at the aesthetics of nature around me, and to have in the Detroit area where we didn't didn't have a lot of nature uh, accessible in in say the National Geographic conventional yeah. uh, scene. Um, for me, having insects and spiders all around accessible was a beautiful thing because now I had endless forms, colors, shapes, behaviors to explore at the reach of my hand. 608-785-7914 is the talk and text line if you want to throw us on. I'm going to introduce you here to Eric from Sparta. So here we go. Eric, do you have a question for Barrett on bugs? Hey, I was wondering, uh, can you tell me what what are the most nutritious bugs when the new world order comes in, the grasshoppers or... Beetles are what tastes best? Can you tell me at all? Wow, it's, I, I, I it's love com- it. It's coming. Don't give me your crap. What's, <laughs> what's coming? Eric, I, I love that you asked this question because one field of uh, endeavor that I'm really interested in is entomophagy or the eating of insects. And we could approach this from a number of different angles. For example, entomophagy or the eating of insects is all the rage now because entrepreneurs and big companies like Aspire, which has a $100 million operation in London, Ontario, to outfits in Madagascar and other parts of the world, are taking advantage of more sustainable forms of protein and uh, nutrition uh, than, say, a pig or a cow or a chicken, which is far less sustainable than, say, rearing crickets or uh, blackfly larvae or grasshoppers or other insects. And as far as tasty goes, it depends on your personal palate. So, for example, some insects, depending on how they're prepared, can have nutty flavors, can be really nutritious and delicious, but others, depending on their, if they're canned, like my least favorite is probably silkworm moth pupae from a can. But there's a lemon. I mean, flavored... from a can, from True. a can, Barrett. Thank you. Thank you. You get it Thank fresh. You. I should give them a little bit more leeway. But say, for example, there's a tiny ant that has a lemony flavor, and then in Africa, if you collect the termites, these are calorically rich, fatty, and some say really delicious. Uh, another example 
an experience I had. Are you, are you saying with that one, you got to watch, you know, maybe, watch maybe just a couple, no, just, right. you know, don't indulge too much into that's that right. one. Cause they're pretty high in fat. Here's a winner of an example. When I used to live in Arizona, I uh, left out a, a, a jar of honey and I didn't screw the cap on tightly enough. And when I came home, the little line of tiny ants crawled in and died forming a layer, but they kept on trying to recruit to this honey. Well, I scooped it out and slathered it on some bread and tasted it. And thought, Whoa, there was an unusual flavor. And I checked whether the bread was bad. No. Honey was bad. No. It was the ant. And the ants belonged to a subfamily of basically blue cheese ants. It tasted like blue cheese. Okay, Barrett, when I ask you if you, if you were the weird little kid that did stuff with bugs. Absolutely and you don't not. Tell, I was the norm. And you Are don't you tell kidding? the, you go to my parents, love. you go to my parents were artists and I got to see a, a bugs <laughs> through art. You don't go to the, I scoop some ant honey onto a sandwich. And ch- that's the story you tell. That's the first one you tell. Uh, 608-785-7914 is the talking text sign. All right, so let me, let me pull this up. Bill texted in, um... What do you know about the American, can, I, can you see that? Oh, pelicinid wasps? Pelicinid wasps. Yeah, so these are harmless, beautiful uh, wasps with extended abdomens, long, thin, curling abdomens. They're a surprise whenever you find them. And I only see maybe one a year, so it's really exciting that you were able to find one. Lunar moss. I see one of those a year. Right oh, my now. gosh. Lu- Luna? Luna moss. Luna moss. And, yeah, I, I just came back. This summer, I was in the Adirondacks studying honeybees out in the, the forest, and there were there was at least one Luna moth a day. It was a glorious season for Luna moths. It's, I mean, glorious season for Luna moths. Sad life for Luna moths. They live 24 hours. They don't have a mouth. Well, I don't know if all moths don't oh have a mouth, God. but... So we have this adult bias because we look at it, we're achieving success as adults. But if you look at a lot of insects, really the gargantuan span of their lives are spent as immatures. I'll give you you a couple examples. The 17 years underground for the cicadas. That's a beautiful example. (laughs) Periodical cicadas. But there's a longhorn beetle that was discovered 27 years in a, a log developing as a larva. And then there are uh, immature mayflies. Now, mayflies, we're really familiar with those because they take over lacrosse. For no, they just take over Quick Trip. That's all. Oh, that's, <laughs> right. just, that's right. Just Quick Trip. And the order name for mayflies is Ephemeroptera, which in Greek means short-lived winged one. Well, the short-lived is adults. Maybe they live for 24 hours or less. And you're right. In this case, they have withered alimentary canals. They don't even eat. But... They live for immatures as for months, even over a year. We got to think of the mayfly when we see them as senior citizens. Yeah, that's right. So to speak, oh my right? goodness! And basically, we should really embrace the brevity of these silvery-winged insects. Are we doing mayflies wrong? Like when they when they hatch, right? Yeah. Do we do we need to just turn the lights off or something like oh that? You goodness. know what I mean? If we could, as a society, just wow! I'm glad you brought that up because of the seven or so major ways that humans negatively impact biodiversity and especially insect diversity, one that we often overlook is light pollution. Mm -hmm. We draw in the insects and warp their circadian rhythms, stop them from doing their normal activities. I mean, we don't even help ourselves in that regard. We were just talking about sleep before. And we'll talk about sleep in a bit, but like, yeah. And you're right. Mayflies, fireflies, a number of insects are distracted by our lights. Yeah, I've read about the fireflies because where I live, well, 
uh, just out past um, Hoka. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of rural out there, and all my some of my neighbors have really bright, like just all night. And I just kind of want to go over there and go, just "Hey, fireflies off. will be happier if you turn those off exactly. at some point in the night." Um, and so many other organisms. All right, so back to Eric's question. Yes. Because I think he wanted to know, when will the New World Order take over and we will only be able to eat crickets? Like, how far down the road are we, Barrett, before crickets are, you know, on the menu and the the gourmet part of the menu? They are already on the menu. (laughs) They're already on the menu. In fact, uh, if we think millennia, well, let's think about as a species, Homo sapiens been around six to seven million years. We split from our ancestor shared with chimpanzees, but you can precede that we were eating insects. And there's really good evidence to show that we've been eating termites and other insects for not just millennia, but for millions of years as uh, as a primate. And so fast forward to uh, modern humans and modern culture. And over 150 species of insects have been traditionally eaten in Oaxaca, Mexico alone. Uh, it's just a bias, typically a colonialist bias, against, and Christopher Columbus brought this over too, eating insects. So indigenous cultures have uh, moved away, unfortunately, from a more sustainable protein source. What At what point, if we saw this on the menu at the restaurant, I don't know, wherever, at Taco yeah. Bell or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, would it be crickets? Because I've, I've read a lot about, like, it's it, crickets are kind of the, the one, but would it be something else? Oh, it could be a variety of insects, but the big ones that people are typically investing in include crickets, uh, blackfly, larvae. Um, is, that because, is that because they're easy yeah. to, like, reproduce and oh, yeah. push out, or is that because they tastes good you know well, what i mean like it, it's a mix like say is. for example you're not going to run in your backyard grab an insect and toss it in your mouth without looking at it first <laughs> and figuring out it's like a mushroom you know you want to be very careful before you identify in identifying what might be poisonous or not yeah and certain insects typically ones that are really brightly colored think red well think of a monarch butterfly orange black white those are warning colors and Birds and others have evolved to recognize, and if they haven't, uh, learn after one episode of attempting to consume one of these monarch butterflies that that is vomit-worthy, right? They've, they've sequestered toxins from milkweeds growing up. So you avoid monarchs. Monarchs will never be on our menu. But other insects that are eminently edible, something that's camouflaged, as long as you raise it so that you clear the gut or something in the gut is is non-toxic like for example if you run out in the spring or summer grab a grasshopper it will probably regurgitate a brownish liquid some people call it tobacco are juice. you saying we got a colon clean the bugs before we yeah like, that's right you bet <laughs> just give them a little feed drink the, this feed them cheerios or let them <laughs> let it run the course for a day and then they'll be fine but say for example that that regurgitant if you taste that It'll be bitter from the alkaloids of plants it's right. consumed. So that's a defensive. Oh, that makes uh, sense with the monarch and milkweed. Okay, yeah. so what about this? The monarch looks, hey, don't eat me because of the way I look. Yeah. But what bug is like, tastes good, but has gone, hey, the monarch's doing it right. I got to look like that. You well, know, there's got to be yeah, bugs like that, right? Absolutely. We turned, this is a weird conversation no, to have. Is, like, what bugs should we eat that, that, that nature says we shouldn't eat? <laughs> this is the best well, conversation. Well, it's a, a very, like, narrow path I'm going down. And you have, you've hit upon the value of mimicry. 
So mimicry model systems. And viceroy butterflies mimic monarchs. Viceroys, if I were to show you a viceroy beside a monarch, probably would be hard-pressed to distinguish them. Viceroys were thought to be one kind of mimic, a Batesian mimic, where they're harmless, but they confer benefits by looking at something that's harmful. But people have found that viceroys are actually toxic themselves, just not as toxic as monarchs. So they fall into a different category of mimicry called Mullerian mimicry, because Mueller found that if you confer benefits by looking very similar to each other and are all toxic, think bees and yellow jackets and things that are strongly banded in their colors, typically a yellow-black, and birds and others will avoid one, they might avoid all. Sure. 608-785-7914. 608-785-7914. Bear Klein's going to hang out for the rest of the hour. If you guys have questions, shoot me a call. We got to, or text, we got to take a break. All right, welcome back to Lacrosse Talk PM 608-785-7914. If anyone knows of any bug Christmas songs, oh, we, we, we tried the internet and couldn't find any. So there's like, there's a market. Mm-hmm. And you know, want to make some money. And there is plenty of insect music out there. Lots. What's the most Christmassy, you know, I'm thinking like red, white, like jolly bug. Absolutely <laughs> nothing comes to mind. And I think because <laughs> there's a temperate bias where insects go under, under the snow, under the logs, and when diapause, so you don't see the insects as readily. Well, I'm just thinking like what one looks most like oh, Santa or something Ooh, like that. A, I mean, it, the, the uh, irony of me bringing the bug guy on in the middle of December is, is not lost <laughs> upon uh, any of us, I'm sure. There are so many warning colored insects that are red and white. I mean, we could think of, well, our, our famous ladybird beetles with the red and black. Oh. That brings Santa a little bit. But they're bit. not even like mean or anything. No, I no, guess no, they no, bite no. you. No, no, no. But are they, any they like are just... chemically defended, so you yeah. don't want to chow down on late ladybird beetles. Yeah, I don't want to eat those. They, no. There's a bunch of them in the corner of my basement. Red and green. There are several true bugs, and those are hemiptera, the order with piercing, sucking mouth parts that feed on plants typically. <laughs> okay. There's some that are glistening red and green. Would they, Santa all over it. Would they like mistletoe? That's a great question. Mistletoe we is should get them together and insects. see what happens. <laughs> all right. <laughs> you might have a true bug that consumes mistletoe. Well, the two bugs... A parasite what, on a parasite. What kind of bugs are they? What are they? There are, there are types of... Tr- they're actually called true bugs. So not all insects are bugs, but all bugs are insects. Okay. But if we got them together and then put mistletoe in there, would they kiss each other oh, or would they wow. eat the mistletoe? Would they, you know, kiss or kill? You know, there kill? is a family of insect called kissing bugs, but they don't kiss each other. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, all right. So you, over the, so I tried to get you in, I, I tried to get you on over the summer when bugs are prevalent and it, this conversation would be more relevant. But I think, uh, I think we could talk about bugs any time of the year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and you were in New York, probably upstate, I'm guessing. Yeah, I yeah. Don't know. in the Adirondacks, in and, the state forest. And you were studying not just bees mm. because we, we could because we, we always talk about bees and how they're dying habitat and why mm. why is there well not even dying habitat they're dying and is it because of habitat is it because of G, uh, uh, what Roundup oh, right yeah. like the right. the spray or mm. is it something else Oh, there are a whole number of factors, and I should back up and really uh, share that when we talk about bees. Let's step back because there are over 20,000 described species of bees. And we typically focus on the western honeybee, Apis mellifera, one species that was brought over to the North America in 
500 years ago. And so we have this bias, millennia old. Why? Because, well, we're on the radio, so I brought in some visuals. Oh, nice. Uh, honeycomb. So these, this is a honeycomb from my uh, honeybees. And that brings us honey, beeswax, propolis, a number of products that we revel in, right? And the model of honeybees as harmonious, as uh, representing royalty, or whatever you want to twist it into, has been inspirational for humans for millennia, right? So if we focus on just that one species, yeah, we can, we can look at uh, our actions that are causing their declines. And there are a number of uh, confluence of activities that are hazardous, not just to honeybees, but to native pollinating bees as well. Yeah, I mean, it is funny. Hey, we're going to spray our plants with a bunch of this stuff so we kill these bugs. Mm. But it'll be okay. Right, sure. And it'll be okay for us. And we're we're probably figuring that it's not. It's kind of like for listeners out there who have a bug zapper, uh, be warned that you're actually attracting insects in with that ultraviolet light. You're doing more harm than good. It's less than useless to have a bug zapper. (laughs) Okay. You'll occasionally zap a mosquito, but you'll do... Uh, a number on so-called beneficial insects. And also it burns electricity. That's right. It's loud. It's gross. Right. You need the fleece water that that's zaps, right. right, instead? No. <laughs> right. I was Absolutely just say, not. You, you're like, none of right. it. None of it. Um, is there any bugs out there where you're like, no, we got to eat this? I mean, mosquitoes is, it seems to be one, but. No. So I actually just held a debate in my entomology class where students were randomly selected to defend mosquitoes or a rail against mosquitoes with the idea that do mosquitoes serve functions? And we can think about ecosystem services. You can pick the most dastardly of insects and they will serve some functions and we might have to dig for it a little bit. We might be ignorant of it, but mosquitoes, there are several thousand species and only the females of maybe a hundred or so species of those will deign to feed on the blood of a human. The rest, and including some of those that will bite humans, are really valuable in supporting bat populations, bird populations, lizard populations, invertebrate populations that ecosystems depend on. All right, back to the bees. Cause yes. Because what, what you talked about and oh, what yeah. I, I was trying to set up is it wasn't anything at all really, that you studied in New York. You you studied bees sleeping? Yeah, I'm really fascinated. I grew up with fascination not only in insects, but in sleep and dreaming. These are weird things. I mean, on average, we spend a third of our lives in this prone state, unconscious to well, the Well, we used world. to. Nobody has time yeah, for right. that anymore. <laughs> and so I wanted to follow a line of research that would combine interests of entomology, insect behavior, and sleep. And so... I found that Walter Kaiser in Germany first looked in the early 1980s at this idea that maybe honeybees sleep. So I followed that research and did I look at it. Did he really have to go, maybe they, like, that seems like a no-brainer that everything sleeps well, in a way? Well, when I mentioned that I study insect sleep, people, you know, their brows lift up and they say, what? And oftentimes people don't know that insects are animals or insects have brains, let alone that insects sleep. And it, it makes us step back and think, okay, what is sleep? How do we define it? Like if I were to watch you in a sleep state, you know, 
sometimes it's hard to know whether or not you're just resting or meditating or in a cold torpor or a coma, right? Well, the, a better way to put that is if you were to watch some of my audience when I'm talking <laughs> and not, you, you know, if I don't have a guest in here, and so, like, oh, are they asleep or no? I'm just and, and there are ways to address that. Like it's not just you're in an immobile state or uh, you're drooping in the direction of gravity, but rather... Are you less apt to respond to an external stimulus? Okay. Does it take more of an external stimulus for you to respond? And if you're deprived of that state, do you exhibit an increased need for it afterwards? So when I think about insects sleeping and we'll just let's just do bees. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is going to be hard for I don't know if you'll be able to determine this. The, the bees they work a lot. Like yes. we talk about how big how hard of workers yeah. they are. And for, for very little, I don't even understand the payoff because it's the honey. Yeah. But is that their payoff? Oh. And then we steal it? Are they pissed about it? Or we get in a whole thing. This little jar that includes wax, which for them is twice as expensive as the production of honey, filled with honey, this would be millions of visits by worker bees. Right. It just, it, it's unfathomable. Yeah. But, but when at the end of the day, the sun's going down. And I've I've had bees where you know I just they're they're chilling on the floor of my house mm-hmm. and then I gotta uh, we can get into it. But are they like man I am beat and I need to go and sleep and then you know this and then they go to the hive and is it like this is my bed? Yeah, okay. absolutely. And and it depends on who you are. So a queen bee lays an egg. That egg hatches and you go through different larval stages as you get bigger. You pupate and then emerge as this winged adult. And the youngest worker honeybees perform one task, but as they age, they change tasks. And their terminal casts, they end their lives as foragers. Mm-hmm. So those foragers will sleep differently and in different places than the youngest adult bees. So it depends on who you're looking at. Okay. And that was a fun thing to uncover, just staring at bees really carefully. So do you, live, do you sleep inside a honeycomb cell? Or do you sleep outside of that cell? Do you sleep right in the epicenter where all the bustling brood are being raised? Or do you sleep on the edge? Well, and then the next question would be, like, in that regard, like, is he like, hey, can you guys shut up over there? I am trying to sleep. So honeybees don't hear. They don't hear far field sound, like me talking to you, right? Or listeners listening uh, through the radio. But they do hear... If it's within a couple of millimeters, near field sound, they do feel substrate-borne vibrations, so they feel it in their feet, and they get bumped all the time. So in a bustling colony of honeybees, you've got to be careful about where you sleep. Right. So I'm I'm guessing they just got to get away from that bustling whatever whatever you call it, and then sleep on their back so their feet are in the air. Ah, No, and then they can't hear. (laughs) So they'll they'll uh, find edges or they'll dive inside cells. So it's actually really amusing to peer in a honeybee colony and try to figure out who's doing what. I find it to be like a soap opera. I love it. Well, I was yeah. I mean, are there just different like 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 us? I, I can't. There's a party going on, but I got to sleep. I'm going to try to go to sleep in this room. No, and then the bee moves to the, a different room or, or yeah. tries to... You know, and a funny thing is we think about inter-individual variability. Like you behaved, you might sleep at different times than I sleep, Rick. And 
similar things can happen with honeybees. So even though they might all look really similar to our eye in a colony, if you look closely, you can begin to find differences. And you can do what we do in the field. While they're feeding, you put a little paint daub on their back and another little paint daub, and now all of a sudden you have bee red-blue and bee yellow-green. Yeah. And then you can watch them for weeks in the hive to see how they behave differently from each other. You can't put a little tracker on them? You can actually. It, we have little tiny do. trackers. Okay. Uh, a great example is called harmonic radar, but you have to do it under really unusual circumstances. If you wait for a bee to leave the colony and then you glue an antenna on her back, you let her fly in an open field, you can send out radar from this harmonic radar yeah. device and find out where she's flying, for Does example. She ate that. <laughs> well, you have to take it off so she can re-enter okay. her nest. So you got to get her. You got to catch yeah. her. You're, there's scientists running in the field. Hey, come back, sweetie. But yeah, right. <laughs> but some insects that are larger, you can actually put at least tiny trackers on. Yeah. It's nothing like what you can do with a bat or a bird or a a, a larger vertebrate. All right, so when uh, it gets to be, I guess maybe fall would be a good time this would happen, as long as I get you in here and we could do this selfishly because I think people would relate. When they, when they find the bee, yeah. I always find bees in my basement. Oh. I don't know how they sneak in. I don't oh. know if they go through like the, 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 the dryer sure duct. it's or, not a yellow jacket? It's a big fat bee. So, a lot, so the most common mistake in identifying insects that I come across is when someone calls a wasp a bee. Hey, I was stung by that wasp, right, mm -hmm. when I was mowing my lawn. But those underground uh, cavity nesters are yellow jackets, typically, okay. or bumblebees. This uh, is a big fatty. Like, oh, yeah. He's, it's, so it's a, probably Bring a bumblebee, in, right? Like, oh, I probably image. have a picture, yeah. Send me an image. Um, see, if I would have talked to you about the, over the last, because the amount of bugs that I sent Ted, <laughs> like, I'd be okay, like, one way to tell a bee from a wasp, for example, they're hairy. And there's a mm. reason that they evolved to be hairy. They have, they have forked hairs. Oh, they're hairy, literally. They're not yeah, named yeah. hairy. Yeah, no, yeah, no, I'm just no. kidding. <laughs> so they have hair-like structures yeah. called CD, and those collect pollen. Okay, so but when, when I find the bee, yeah. or whatever, whatever it is, in the house, they're tired, right? Like, so I've read that you get a little sugar and put it in water and put it on a spoon or something, and they just, so they can get their energy back. But it never, but I'm always like, hey, come on, here you go. That, Take can, that can work. Like even researchers who are conducting studies with honeybees, what they'll do is they'll tap the antenna with sugar water and automatically their tongue-like mouth parts will emerge. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So you can feed them at that point. See, somebody so needs to put that in the article, but I guess they've been, you know. And then also then when, when I give up on that, I just put them in a flower. Because usually, a great idea. and I just like, but bees sleep in flowers too, right? I've Some seen, do. I've seen a lot of them like attached inside, like they hold each other's hands. Yeah. I think if I'm remembering the picture I've seen right, you know, I, let I a, could be off though. I let I have a really tiny backyard, and a, a tiny part of that tiny backyard I let go wild, and uh, in that area, invariably, I get these native wild plants that are growing that are per, uh, that are annuals. Actually, no, these are perennials, perennials yeah. and. Uh, there are a number of species of native bees that will appear there when they wouldn't otherwise. And some of them will clamp on at night and sleep all in a row. Yeah, it's interesting. Love that. So what did you learn about, oh, you know, your so study? Like you came, I, like, because we knew bees slept. I have a bee team in the pupating lab at UWL. Okay. And Aaron, Evelyn, James, Olivia, 
and Trey are all working hard to transcribe the videos and thermal data and audio data we took from the the summer of the bees to determine if they're sleep restricted. And yes, we actually sleep restricted some of the bees with the insominator, a contraption I built which has magnets. And if you put little ferrous tags on some of the bees, they wiggle at night Mm -hmm. and lose some sleep. And then you can see what happens to those bees if they try to communicate to other bees. And honeybees have this marvelous uh, a way of behaving where they can communicate direction and distance to an advertised site through a dance. It's called the waggle dance. And they'll waggle their abdomens at an angle relative to the vertical in the comb. That same angle is the exact angle relative to the sun when someone follows that dance, leaves the nest. So they'll fly, okay, there's the sun. The dancer I followed wiggled 30 degrees to the right of the sun, (laughs) or to the right of the vertical, so I'm going to fly 30 degrees to the right of the sun. She waggled her abdomen for a full second. For me, that means a kilometer away. So I'm going to fly a kilometer at 30 degrees to the right of the sun, and that's where my floral patch will be. When when you insominated... Inso- yeah. Is that right? Insominated. Dirty a little bit. <laughs> when you deprive the bee of sleep, yeah. did the next night the bee, oh, I need to get to bed earlier, I need yes. to sleep in or something so, like yes, that? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Like us, right? So she exhibited this sleep, uh, need for sleep um, when deprived of sleep. So this internal control, which suggests a functional aspect to sleep. But more importantly, she danced less precisely. So the direction component is sloppier. And the followers end up switching to other dancers rather than leaving the nest to collect food. So there are repercussions to sleep loss in this communication breakdown that happens in honeybees, just as we find, especially in the military, in U.S. research, for humans. What did you call it when they're 30? What, you, you called it dance now, but before that you called it... A waggle dance. A waggle dance. Yeah. Well, you should just call it twerking. People would, <laughs> your students would be like, oh, it's, they're twerking. It's far more than twerking. They're moving a, lo- a vertical, waxen landscape, <laughs> not just staying still. They're not just twerking. <laughs> no. It's a, it's a it's flying much more twerk. elaborate. The flerk. It's All a right. ritualized, stereotyped mini flight in the form of a waggle dance. So just acronym that, and maybe it's spelled yeah, yeah. the word. <laughs> All right. right. We'll be back. All right, welcome back to Lacrosse Talk PM. In the studio with me is UW Lacrosse entomologist Dr. Barrett Klein. Spent an hour talking about bugs in the middle of December, ironically. Best thing ever. I um let me think here. Okay, so you you're gonna have a book coming out in October? Oh yeah. So I wrote this book for Timber Press called The Insect Epiphany, how human culture uh or how our six-legged allies shape human culture. So the insect epiphany is about really the myriad, myriad, myriad ways that insects affect human activity. Is the title like locked down? Is this it? This is the well, title? Well, we'll see. Because is it an insect epiphany or is it like a human needs an epiphany on insects? You know, be you know way, that's way more complicated. I'm an entomologist and even I have regular epiphanies when I realize how important insects are in our history and, and our existence. Okay, now I see it. It's an ins. Okay, because in the my head, I'm epiphany. thinking I'm the insect and no, I'm having the, the epiphany. epiphany that insects are affecting us so profoundly. And I brought a couple things because we're on the radio. Yeah. Again. <laughs> and here, this powder, this red powder, 
And here is holding a vial of what looks like well. Here I'll give you an in a different salt. form. Put your hand out. Okay. These are the dried bodies of cochineal bugs, a kind of true bug that's harvested in Peru, but Mexico and other areas. And these bugs have changed the shape, the face of human um, culture. Uh, empires have risen or fallen due to these bugs and other true bugs that we've used as either dyes, uh, adhesives, um, as cloth. Here's silk, for example, mm-hmm. from Bombyx mori silkworm moths. Um, and I have already mentioned honey and wax. In the case of cochineal bugs, we can look back to Spanish conquistadors invading um, cultures that would domesticate or raise very specifically these cochineal bugs for the red dye that they can create when pulverized, dried, pulverized, and then placed in fabrics. We talk about marijuana, hemp. Yeah. Uh, if we, we're starting to do hemp farms and hemp mm-hmm. you know, fields, is there a bug version of this that we could be or should be utilizing? This seems a little bit more morali- morality uh, where we're, we're, you know, we're just killing bugs for... Yeah, it's a great it's a great question because we all draw our lines in different ways in the sand. And so, for example, if you used to go to Starbucks and get a strawberry frappuccino, it was dyed with cochineal bugs, right? Mm-hmm. Until people said, "Wait, those those that organic red dye is not vegan. It's coming from pulverized okay, yep. insects, right?" And so, Starbucks switched it out to uh, a synthetic dye. Well, is that synthetic dye f- safe? So we have it in our minds since the 1970s that there are some carcinogenic red dyes. Yeah. So we could just, as a society, be like, we we don't need the color. We don't need that bright red. Right. And it's so, gonna. It's it, all. All our drinks can just be Coke brown, right? Like right. It all can just look like that, <laughs> and we'll deal with it. And yet, we look at, say, religious leaders as well as political leaders of the past, and what two colors come to mind? red and purple. And those come from cochineal bugs or relatives, other scale bugs, and mollusks that form the purple, the Tyrian uh, blue or Tyrian purple. And and so this shaped so greatly. I mean, the just as an example... Uh, By the way, one minute. Oh my goodness! Uh, insects are amazing! <laughs> no, you've, no, that was too, that was too fast. You have a whole minute. You have a whole minute. Um, okay, so... This book comes out in October, but okay. As we we finish out the winter, what can people do to th- as they think oh, about bugs? You so know, in thirty seconds now, I'll, we can do a lot of things. Like for example, we can grow uh, native plants rather than monocultures in the form of lawns. We don't have to rake all of our leaves, for example, because insects are developing there. Insects that can pollinate your flowers, insects that can serve a number of different ecosystem functions that you might not think about readily. Because insects are not only seed dispersers, they're decomposers, they're pollinators, they're soil aerators. All right. Barrett, thanks a lot. That's all the time we have. Thanks, everybody, for listening, texting, and calling.